0: Twists and turns of of Joseph and his family for some time now, haven't we? Uh, In the previous chapter, everything finally took a turn. So if you weren't here, here's the big reveal: is that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, uh, the same ones who thought that they would never see him again after selling him into slavery. Over time, the Lord had brought a, I think we could call it a, a holy guilt. Upon them, and that was intended to bring them to repentance and to transform them so that then, right right there in that past chapter, once they learned that joseph was was alive was standing right there before them, then they could truly celebrate with joy. and oh what joy that would be right and even the more so as as they started thinking, of, oh wait, we get to bring this good news to dad. We get to go to Jacob, also called Israel, and tell him that his favored son yet lives. So what's left of the story? I, I mean, if this was a TV series, this would be like the finale of season one, wouldn't it? I might think that Genesis would end here, but surprisingly, there's actually quite a bit more. Um, So today we're going to read not only of Jacob being reunited with this son that he long thought had been dead, but we're also going to come across everyone's favorite, a genealogy. There you go. Yeah, you can chuckle a little, right? Now there's a number of these in the Bible. Here in Genesis, they often signal major events uh, in the storyline. They'll happen, and then something will change, or we'll pick up the story of someone else. Um, so it will be here. Uh, other times they'll they'll simply serve to help move the story along. You know, almost a, a summing up to this point, and then now we're going to have a few chapters, and then then something will change. That's what we're going to see here today. This is going to get us ready for the end of Genesis, and then future sermon series. Uh, for the very beginning of of Exodus. Yet as true as those facts are, genealogies don't usually make for real exciting reading, now do they? I mean, is there really a point to these lists of hard-to-pronounce names? Is this something that we should be spending our very limited, precious Sunday sermon time on? My goal this morning is I'm hoping to convince you that the answer is yes. I suppose if not, I'll be gone for the week, so maybe I'm ducking out, but I'm hoping to convince you that the answer is yes. As we see this in Genesis chapter 46. I want you to see that genealogies, like the one that we're just about to read, are are actually filled to the brim with truths that we need to know. Truths That will give us hope, but only if we don't skip over them. Truths that are going to build up our trust in the Lord. And that's really what we need, isn't it? One of the big truths that I want you to see, even from these first verses that I'm about to read, is that we are called to trust, to to act on our faith before a lot of times. God gives us his blessing. It's tough, isn't it? So often we want the the road map before we do anything. We won't even start on the journey until we are sure that God has said, yes, do this, talk to that person, do these things. That's not going to be the example today. Today, it's going to be you need to step out in faith and then trust that God will sustain you in me. lesson for us and it's one we need to see right here from the start of Genesis chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt start with a vision from god shouldn't be too surprising to us that god chooses to confirm all these travel plans through a vision and i'm saying that very specifically notice israel again i keep this running note because i was confused for so many years when i was little so this is to help you israel is jacob at this point And it's to show you that this man named Jacob basically is the the founder of what we're going to call the nation of Israel. Well, here it's a person. Soon it will be a family. Eventually it will be a nation. So same guy, same person. Don't get confused by that. But notice he, verse 1, took his journey with all that he had, and this was before God gave him the vision. Isn't that astounding? gives the confirmation once he's on the road and I want to say that that might be right here from verse 1 one of the biggest applications for you and for me this is what it means to not just know about God but to actually trust him it's to step out in faith even when we don't know all the answers even when we aren't sure that this is the right course and that's what trust is that's what it Looks like. So it is here. That's why I say then that it shouldn't be too surprising to us that God chooses to confirm all these travel plans then with a vision. Doesn't always do that. But here in this case, he does. I mean, after all, it's how he's communicated with Jacob in the past. Uh, you, You know, you think of the Jacob's ladder vision. Back in Genesis 28, that's probably the most familiar one or the most famous one for us. But why does God need to give this vision now? That's a good question, I would think. I mean, after all, you know, the word that has come to Jacob is that his son is alive. You know, he's inviting the whole family to move with him to Egypt. Indeed, Jacob has already started on the journey God need to give him a vision. What's what's the big deal? Well, the big deal comes in two parts. Uh, The first is that Egypt is not the promised land that was spoken of by God back in the covenant with Abraham. To us, that doesn't mean all that much. But you need to think of this. I mean, in essence, moving to Egypt means moving away from the land that God had said would be Israel's. That's that's no small thing when God himself is the one who said it, who promised it, who has brought all this about, and now it's to say, okay, God, I know that's the promised land, but but I think you're going to save us over here in Egypt. Sometimes life's really challenging like that, isn't it? It's like, okay, God, I know you said this, and I believe you're going to do it, but I believe you also have another step in the meantime. Again, that's what faith looks like. It's like, okay, Lord, you lead. Even if I don't understand, I will follow. That's the challenge here. And I think one of the reasons God gives this vision is to help Jacob know, yeah, this is part of my plan. Don't get me wrong. I haven't forgotten about the land but this is how I'm ultimately going to make it so you can dwell there. Right? There's a famine everywhere. We need food. You stay there, you're going to die. I'm going to provide for you first. Secondly, though, Egypt has not normally been a good place for God's people. Right? This, we talked a little bit in the adult Sunday school class about how we need to know our history. Right? To, to have a present, to have a future, we need to know our past one pastor has has put it before. So it is here. Uh, Earlier in Genesis, Abraham had a quite a harrowing experience in Egypt back in the day. And that was while fleeing a famine, interestingly enough. Uh, Isaac, Jacob's father, was directly told not to go to Egypt during yet another famine. And so now we're in a similar situation. There's a new famine. right? Who could blame Jacob for, for maybe being in need of a little bit of confirmation? Like, okay, God, right? Egypt? All right, I'm, I'm going to start on the way, but you're going to have to really make this clear before I'm going to you know, step over the border, as it were, there. Right, so, so that's what God's doing. What does he say in the vision? Well, he makes clear that going to Egypt is not going to somehow void the promise. This isn't a sign of, uh, of Jacob's unfaithfulness. Instead, God commits that He Himself is going to go with Jacob. And that's crucial, isn't it? Um, just a just a little note here. Sometimes you know, we're we're all built a little differently, right? Some of us are more apt to the, to to see things in kind of you know spiritual terms. Some of us are, are very pragmatic, and okay, so this. Maybe this applies to you. Maybe it doesn't. But sometimes, sometimes I think we we have this struggle that that God is only at work in, in these miraculous sorts of events. You know, um, you know, I woke up today and it, it was completely different. And and, and wow, you know, the, the thunderbolt came down. You know, that's sort of the Martin Luther story. If you don't know that, it's literally he was almost struck by lightning, and that's what got him to be a monk which is what led to the reformation and sometimes we think that that's only the way that God works not so here how is God working here to preserve his promise I mean yeah he's giving a vision but what's the vision about it's hey go to Egypt and get food right God uses normal ordinary means most often to care for his people maybe you've you've seen that there's a little cartoon this has been around quite a while of you know the flood comes and, and there's the man who's you know on top of his house and the flood waters are up there and and, and a boat comes and you know they're like hey we're gonna rescue no no I'm, I'm i'm praying that god would come rescue me you know i don't i don't need you god's gonna do it you know and, and Eventually, you know, there's like a helicopter with a guy that's like, we're we're here to pull you off your roof. The flood's going to get worse. No, no, I'm praying that God will miraculously rescue me. Eventually, the flood does get worse. man dies. He ends up in heaven. You know, Lord, why didn't you save me? Well, I sent a boat and a helicopter, and you turned them down. Often in the scriptures, it's the very ordinary things that God is at work in get me wrong there's there's all kinds of miracles that that blow our minds but sometimes the miracles are very ordinary you know what we might call just a happenstance or coincidence some people might even call it luck no that's God at work so it is here how is God going to keep his promise to preserve his people hey the foods in Egypt go there I've provided for you there. Amazing, isn't it? Not only that, but notice kind of the final part of this vision. God has said not only will he be with and go with Jacob, but ultimately that Jacob's going to return out of Egypt. Hey, you're, you're coming back, Jacob. It's okay. Right? So n- not only reassurance then that this is God will provide and protect for his people then and there, but also that he would be with them in and on the journey in Egypt, coming back out in the future. Uh, If you've read through the scriptures, read through Exodus, you know that's exactly what God does. He is with his people to bring them back out of Egypt. So I want you to see something before we move on from these verses. God is with his people. If you were in Sunday school, you you heard that in several ways with the, with the temple. Right? So it is here. In fact, it wasn't that many weeks ago we heard it with our vacation Bible school. Right? It had that theme, Emmanuel, God with us. Right? In their case, the focus was on Jesus, who quite literally, was and is God with us. Yet here, even so early in the Bible, we're still in the first book. So even all the way back in Genesis, we can see, we can be confident that God is with his people. That was the whole point of of the tabernacle, which would come later. When God's people moved, he was with them. That's the point of the temple. When God's people dwelled, he dwelt among them. This is what God is doing. And you know what? Nothing's different. We don't need a temple or a tabernacle made of of skins or stone because God is with us. You heard that in the scripture reading through the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, the Lord is with you and in no less powerful of a way as we see here. Absolutely amazing. And in John 14, then, this was what Jesus told the disciples. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Wherever we go, God is there. So every Christian this very day, friends, has the Holy Spirit inside of them, quite literally, God with, You've not been abandoned, though I realize some days may feel exactly like you have. You've not been overlooked, though perhaps that's exactly what you feel this moment in these pews. You wonder, where's God? I mean, the world's overlooked me for sure. Has God also? You've not been cast aside, though that very much may appear to be how things are. You might feel like you are in the the never-ending, heavenly-holding pattern. Are we ever going anywhere, God? Or are we just going to circle and circle and circle? One time when I was in seminary, I was flying from, from Dallas back to Des Moines. And, of course, I would always come home around Christmas, and there was this awful snowstorm uh, in Des Moines at the time. So, you know, we, we get just outside of Des Moines, and we're circling. We were up there about an hour, and then of course the pilot gets on the plane and gives you that wonderful news. You know, we're going to be diverted to another airport because we're actually running low on fuel at this point. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding! You're not supposed to tell us that. So then we go over to Omaha, and you know what we do? We circle and circle and, cir- and I'm counting like I don't know how much fuel's in this thing. You know what though? We landed. That's what your life feels like. You're wondering is there ever going to be a landing? What is God doing? I don't have all the answers, but God does. You have not been abandoned or cast aside. God is with you. And ultimately, God is with his church, the body of believers gathered together. We know this not only now, but also because of the vision that Jesus gives us that when Christ comes we will be with him directly and personally because who does it say that that he's coming for who is the bridegroom coming for the bride his church revelation tells us now why does all this matter other than maybe connecting some really important dots throughout the scriptures it matters because we can have confidence that what we believe is not just some myth it's not just some story now the Holy Spirit is the, the down payment, right? He's the uh, the assurance. He's the, um, I think, when I bought a house, they called it the earnest money, right? When you first put in the offer, and that's the the idea that hey, you're going to go through with this. Well, so it is with the Holy Spirit. He's the He's the promise of whatever we may wonder or worry about or be concerned about now. Hey, don't forget. Here he is. Here's the promise. He's in you. He's with you and with us. And so I wonder, do you have this kind of reassurance? Maybe not. And if not, I want you to know that you can take Christ as your Savior if you haven't. Confess him as your king. I, I have, and it just doesn't. I just don't sense him. I don't. I don't know what's going on. Okay, ask the Lord to help you follow and grow in all that Christ has taught and commanded. Right? Ask Him ultimately to help you know His work in you. You know what? He might do something absolutely amazing that's going to go down and be written and encourage Christians for, for decades. I don't know. It might also just be very simple. It might just be a growing confidence. Yeah, God's at work in me, He's at work in us. That's no less miraculous, not for us, nor for Jacob's entire family. Speaking of that family, what do we see from them next? Look at verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hetzron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jashin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hetzron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jehalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram together with his daughter Dinah, all together, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Now just hold this for a second, okay? I want you to start noticing there's a pattern to all of this. All right. So I'm going to keep reading, but don't check out for the names. Ask yourself, what's the pattern? What's, what's going on here? The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Machiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, The daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Bishur, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim. The sons of Naphtali, Jahziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalim. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seven. So, the people of God, right? it might seem like just a, a long list of names, and family reunions were real tongue twisters, weren't they? It's more than that, though. Right? These names are also a record of what God has done and will do for this one extended family. So, so there are patterns. First things first, we need to understand the, the organization, the pattern of this genealogy. Start at the top, verses 8 through 15. These record the sons of Jacob's first wife, the eldest daughter of Laban, Leah. Right, Kind of shocking, isn't it? Because Leah was the wife who was not most loved. Here, she's honored again. Right? So these verses also then, you'll notice they record her that, that wickedness of ur Onan, the sons of Judah, we read about that just a few chapters ago. So, right, you're, you're getting this snapshot of what has happened up to this point. Second grouping, verses 16 to 18. This records the sons of Zilpah, who was Leah's servant, and whom Jacob had offspring with. So here, I want you to start noticing, then, that each of the groups in this genealogy ends with a number, right? we there's more of a pattern even going on here. Uh, with with Leah, it was 33. Here, it's 16. Uh, don't worry, I'm not gonna jump into some Bible code kind of thing. A- and yes, for those of you math people, I realize there's gonna be some interesting things with who's counted and who's not with the numbers. Um, you can find that in a good study Bible, like an ESV study Bible or something, if you're wanting to, to dig in that direction. For now, though, my point is just keep this in mind. These numbers are adding up to a point. We're going to come back to it. Verses 19 to 22 speak of the sons of Rachel. This is the wife that Jacob loved. Interesting that she's coming third in the genealogy. It's not usually how things are done in the Bible. Usually the most important come first. So here we read of the two key characters that we've been seeing over these past few chapters. We've got Joseph and Benjamin. And so just as Rachel was the younger of Laban's two daughters, Benjamin is the youngest of the sons of Israel. So that's why we kind of have this third entry highlighting that. Uh, That makes Joseph the second youngest. Finally then, we read in verses 23 to 25 of the sons of Bilhah. Rachel's servant, also given to Jacob. And so what's the ultimate point being made? Verses 26 and 27. Everyone who is connected to Jacob left for Egypt. The whole house of Israel, as we might call it, only numbers how many folks? Seventy. Seventy. That's not all that many. I didn't ask our how many are here today, but most Sundays we have about 70 or so people in this room. So here it is. This is the family that God has made promises to. Not very big. I don't say any, any shame for us. I don't mean it that way, but when you think of God's promises and you think of Israel, aren't you thinking of something much bigger, much greater? Not at this point this point, it's small. It's it's like a, a flame that could be easily snuffed out. And so it's all the more amazing here, isn't it? Right? No one's left behind. This nation of Israel that we often think of is might be smaller than realized and yet they are God's people. One big extended family. This is what God is doing. Why does that matter then to notice that? It matters because this is the record of how God is keeping his promises. Right? 70 people might not seem all that impressive to you and me, but it's pretty amazing given how the promises began. Do you remember? With all due respect, but this is how he's called in Hebrews, you know, with an old man as good as dead, an old woman began with two people. Now there's 70. And it's going to grow from there so much so that the land of Egypt at this point, quite the military power, is going to be afraid of this one extended family. This is God keeping his promises. He's rescuing his imperfect people from famine and and soon it will be with Egypt from slavery and tribulation. He's upholding every single thing that he has said. That's why this genealogy matters because each one of these names is a reminder and a record that God is upholding, is sustaining, is fulfilling our God. None of his promises shall fail. None of, to use another Old Testament metaphor, none of his words shall fall to the ground. I love that picture. God speaks, and it's not like when you or I speak. You know, Sometimes people listen to us, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's like your words just sort of land on the ground. They don't go anywhere. They don't do is that the case with our God? Everything that he says is exactly as it shall be. So when our God tells us, remember Jesus is fully God, that he is going away and has sent a helper to indwell us instead, that is a promise that you can trust because it's true. It's real. It will never be revised. There's no asterisk with fine print. It will never be canceled retroactively. This is what God is doing. This is the kind of God that we serve. Now there's one more part to this chapter to see how all this ends up. You find it starting in verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. Then they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even unto now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination the Egyptians third and finally the place for God's people at least for now temporary housing so not only is God preserving his people from famine he's also preserving them as a separate and distinct people even in Egypt they're to settle in Goshen ultimately because of the prejudices of the Egyptians get out a map you're going to find that Goshen is far from the centers of Egyptian power right it's toward Canaan you know so it's almost the frontier region of Egypt and here I want you to notice something very crucial it's because God's people are the recipients of prejudice it's because of the the discrimination of the Egyptians it's because of that that they're going to be kept together, that they're going to be worshiping the Lord and not tempted to run after other gods. We think of discrimination and prejudice as these horrific things, and you know what, we should. Don't hear me undermining that. But I want you to understand that in God's all-seeing, all-sovereign, all-powerful will, even things as terrible as that can bring blessings people of God nothing is so terrible that God cannot use it for his good so it is here right this is this is even what Joseph wants right he didn't want to see his family molded into the the pagan Egyptian culture and so that desire ends up preserving God's people and their worship in a way that will make them distinct and will prepare them for the exodus that's going to come. Right? And God does it all through seemingly really bad circumstances. So what about us in all of this? For you and me, don't miss the biggest story here. Because the biggest story is not about a it's not about a journey and how nice Pharaoh was to send him some carts and The biggest story here is about God's character. He is the God who rescues his people from famine, who protects them from a devastating and dishonoring culture. This is the God who uses broken families and sinful people. And notice, by the way, he does this by bringing us and them through trials. Not always around them absolutely amazing that that god loves his people to this extent and best of all this is not just their god way back then but it's our god he loves us in fact first john tells us that he first loved us before we ever thought to respond to him in the famous john three sixteen. We also read of how God's love is extended all across the world, so much so that that Christ's death, his sacrifice, his covering of sins applies to anyone who trusts him. That's our God. So in Jacob and in Joseph, see the story of the God who is present with and cares for his people and then realize that that story is ultimately a part of the story of what our God, is doing for us even now and he will continue until Christ comes how do we respond I think it's really hard to come up with well with much of a better way than to rejoice to, to give thanks because this same God cares for you and for me and for his church and for this church we respond with worship let's do that as we pray oh heavenly father you provided exactly what Jacob did exactly when he needed it perhaps not when he wanted it Lord no doubt he would have been quite encouraged if you would have told him before he even started out and packed up for Egypt no doubt he would have been quite encouraged if back on that fateful day when Joseph was sold into slavery that if even then he had somehow known that you would have told him that his son still lived. Lord, from our perspective, those are the things we want to know. And yet, the reality is that everything that you have done for Jacob and for Joseph and for the whole family was perfect. It was at just the right time, in the right place, in the right way. And so, Lord, our prayer is that you would help us to do three things. Lord, would you help us to believe what you have written here? So often that's our challenge, is, is that we know what your word says, but we don't really believe it. We may not disagree with it. We might kind of nod our heads and, yeah, that's what the word tells us. But, Father, to actually believe it when the rubber meets the road, that's not easy. That's a work that you have to do through your spirit in our heart. And then secondly, Lord, as you do that work, would you build us up in the faith so that we would want what you want, that we would trust you to lead, even when we don't understand, when we don't have the answers, but that we would trust that you are so good and loving that all of our doubts, our concerns, our very real struggles would melt in the sight of you who loves us. Work that into our hearts. Work that into our obedience so that finally, Lord, and third, that our response would be worship. That you would produce in us such a trust, such an assurance of who you are and what you're doing, that the way we respond would be undeniable to friends and family and students and neighbors, that they would see that that Christians aren't just a people who check a box or show up to a certain building on Sunday, but that Christians are a people who are changed and transformed and in the process of being molded. Savior, but the Spirit he has sent so that we would enjoy our good Father forever. We ask these things in your Son's name.